Okay, welcome to, we think this is number four in the series of our All About Java podcast. I'm Matt Greencroft. Uh, I'm Richard Chesterwood. And with us today, very excited, we have Ian Massingham, who is a technical evangelist from Amazon AWS. Welcome, Ian. Hi, thanks for inviting me to participate, guys. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here. And it's hot on the back of yesterday was the AWS Summit in London. Day before yesterday. Day before yesterday. Yes. You know, it's gone so quick this week. And you were just telling us, actually, before we started here, that you had more people than you expected. Yeah, it was our largest event uh, ever in the UK. We had... We expected around about 6,000 guests, and we actually had over 7,000. So we had a really good, uh, really good turnout. Obviously, our CTO, Werner Vogels, a larger-than-life character in every way, uh, gave the keynote. We had over 40 technical breakouts, covering actually many, many different aspects of AWS, from beginner to advanced, and also across the, ser the services portfolio we've got. And as, as usual, we were able to feature a huge number of customer speakers as well, so a pretty successful event. And uh, already had some good feedback from some tired people that worked <laughs> on it and some good, people, good feedback from some customers that attended as well. So it's been a, nice. been a good event this week, yeah. And what we were debating was, do you have a handle on, I guess you've got the figures on, how many of the people attending were new customers? Yeah, in or... fact, our, our managing director for the UK and Ireland, Gavin Jackson, opened the keynote and talked a little bit about this. So around about 40% of the people that were at the event were new to AWS or experimenting with AWS. Wow. So this is... It's not unusual for AWS summits. Obviously, there are free events that we run in cities around the world, and yeah. we do get a lot of customers coming along that are curious, that are just getting started with Amazon Web Services and want to learn more about how they can put the cloud to work. So that's actually pretty common to have a high ratio of, of newbies at events like that. And that's why we have the diversity in the content program with the intro-level content and, yes. and the more advanced sessions as well. It's, it's, do, do you see this as an event that gives people a chance really then to explore and to find out more, because I mean, we, we obviously have an interest because we use AWS for our own company, and so we are incorporating elements of it in the courses that we do. Um, but I, one of the things that was going through my head is what's what's your what's the reason that Amazon puts all this effort and all this resource into producing these massive one-day events? Well, customers tell us that they're valuable. I mean, that's the real reason that we do everything at Amazon. We have, and that's not just Amazon Web Services. That's Amazon more broad, more broadly. We have obviously. Amazon leadership principles that we use to run the business. And the first one that comes out when you look at the list of 14 leadership principles on the, the Amazon website, which I encourage you and your audience to do actually if you've not already done that, you'll see customer obsession is at the top of the list. We have processes that we use, methodologies that we use, one called working backwards where we try to ensure that everything we do within Amazon starts with and is centered around the, the needs of customers. And this makes us able to run a lean operation where we're able to prioritize things effectively and make sure that we only focus on activities that are important to customers so it's good for efficiency uh, but it also makes sure that we remain beyond customer focused in what we do and the reason that we run these summits is because customers repeatedly tell us that they are a valuable tool in helping them make more and better use of the cloud that's why uh, that's why we run them obviously it helps us encourage and accelerate adoption of the services so it gives us a sustainable business by doing that but that's not the main reason the main reason is we want to support customers in achieving their objectives and one of the ways we do that is by educating them mm -hmm. okay thank you so let should we get into some of the detail because i think yeah we certainly can well i came away from yesterday so I, I keep wanting to say yesterday i think because it was such an intensive day i needed a day to recover you can't remember yesterday so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yesterday, yesterday i've blanked out the day before yesterday, so no but i came away from the summit definitely with one of the big messages I got was serverless. Yeah. Serverless is, it's obviously not a new thing, but it's a growing thing. 
Um, and I guess it would be worth just talking a bit about what we mean by serverless, what are some of the use cases. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about how actually it might solve a problem we've got. So yep. Um, yep. do you want to tell us a bit about from your point of view? Yeah, certainly do that. So the term serverless is not a term that was invented by, by Amazon Web Services. That's a industry or maybe more accurately community term that's arisen as a result of uh, architects and software developers building applications using this new model, using this new paradigm. What we launched uh, back in 2015, I think I'm getting my dates right, at the end of 2015, was a service called AWS Lambda. Uh, we described it as an event-driven computing service. With AWS Lambda, what you can do is create software. Uh, initially, we started with support for JavaScript and Python. We've now added Java and C Sharp support as well. You create software, you package it up into deployment bundles in a defined structure with a specific entry point. Uh, and then that software, those functions, those AWS Lambda functions to give them their full name, they're activated in response to events. Okay? And actually, we support a broad range of different event sources. We started out with a, a few, but over time, we've been adding more and more event sources. And each time one of these qualifying events occurs, your AWS Lambda function will be invoked, and it will be passed metadata about the event that has triggered it. So maybe a good way to illustrate this is with a real-world example. Maybe I've got a website or application that requires image or video transcoding. So I'm receiving images from my customers in a variety of different formats, maybe a variety of different sizes, but I need them as PNGs in a specific aspect ratio and a specific size to display in my UI. How might I go about doing that? Well, in the old days, I could have had an Amazon EC2 instance sitting around, listening to a queue maybe, popping messages off that queue and processing images as they arrived. It's and very your bills. So, oh yeah, I was going to say it's got. There's an obvious advantage there, which is it's a event-driven process. So I initiate an activity in response to getting a message in my queue, but it's also a process where I have to have that listener sitting around the whole time, or when my application's active, polling that queue to see if there are new messages there. So it's not an event-driven, not a push-based model. It's a pull-based model, yeah. and I've got the cost of that EC2 instance. You know, whenever I'm performing that function, I'm running sure. that instance, and I'm paying for it by the hour, as you know. Mm. Okay. Now, I can auto-scale that, because I can scale on queue depth if I want to do so okay. using a CloudWatch metric, but it's still going to have fixed costs. There is a floor cost there that's going to be incurred regardless of whether or not I've got a message in my queue. Implement the same thing with AWS Lambda. Well, I set up an Amazon S3 bucket, our object store. I configure event notifications on that bucket each time an object is added to the bucket I'm going to trigger a specific lambda function I push my photos into that bucket each time a new photo arrives a lambda function gets triggered it's past metadata about the new object that's been created mm -hmm. it can process the object depositing it back in the same or a different bucket when it's been transcoded to meet the size and format requirements that I've got so what are the benefits well I've got no fixed costs if I have no photos arriving overnight guess what mm -hmm. I have zero costs yep. Conversely, if I have a thousand photos arriving concurrently, actually, I don't even need to change my Lambda concurrency limit now within my account. We recently increased that to a thousand concurrent oh, functions. Right. Okay. That's neat. So we can run a thousand concurrent transcoding jobs without having to change anything. Uh, and if we want to do more, just request a limit increase from Amazon Web Services. We can increase that. And I know customers that have got that limit set at hundreds of thousands and wow. higher concurrent functions. Okay. So wow. you've got practically unlimited scalability. 
You don't have to manage failure conditions. You don't have to manage maintenance of EC2 instances. You don't have to worry about distributing them across availability zones. You get all these benefits of simplicity, cost efficiency, and you don't have that floor cost. No activity, no cost. So you don't have to worry about security, patching servers, that kind of thing. You don't have to worry so. about security of the operating system or patching the operating system. Yeah. Obviously, you still need to worry about the security model or take into account the security model of the functions themselves. Of course. And there's a few things there that are relevant, actually, we can talk about. The first thing is, if you want to, you can run the functions inside a VPC and you can attach an ENI to them, an Elastic Network Interface to them. Mm -hmm. And this can allow your functions to work with data sources or state stores that are inside a VPC. So right. think you know, relational databases running yeah. on RDS, or think uh, MongoDB or Cassandra clusters sitting inside your VPC. If you want to use those as a state store rather than our own DynamoDB, well, you can do that. You can run your Lambda functions inside a VPC and give them secure access to resources. The right. functions actually run with a security group attached to them, just like instances. So it, it's exactly the same security model that you would have for, for EC2, but mm -hmm. you remove the overhead of running that EC2 fleet. There's some caveats there, but we're not going to discuss them here. Check the documentation. <laughs> okay. Things like having enough IP addresses in each subnet where you're going to create your functions. If you've got high concurrency, yes. you need lots of addresses available so you can create lots of ENIs and attach them to your functions. So there are some design considerations, mm -hmm. but everything's documented on our, on our docs. Second important part of the security model is the AWS IAM, or Identity and Access Management, Well, it plays a role in Lambda, both in controlling who can invoke functions via our API, mm -hmm. but also the functions themselves run with IAM roles. Mm -hmm. So you can have functions that can uh, communicate and initiate actions on other AWS APIs. And actually, the example I've just given where the function not only receives metadata about that object on S3, but also wants to read the content of the object so right. that it can perform that transcode, well, that function would be running with an IAM role that gives it permission to access that particular S3 bucket or that particular S3 prefix within that bucket. So you have this fine-grained access control that comes with IAM, which is in play whenever you run Lambda functions. So you can have a very strong security model around your functions as well. Perfect. And I think what would be attractive to our customers if they're thinking of experimenting with Lambda is I think the pricing is very sort of straightforward and, and you're not with experimenting, you're going to nowhere near leave the free tier. Yeah, you can run quite significant applications in AWS Lambda without, running the, without leaving the free tier. We offer a million function invocations and 400,000 gigabyte seconds of execution time per month for free mm -hmm. uh, forever. So it's not like EC2 where your free tier runs out after a year. With Lambda, you can use that. You can use that for as long as you use AWS. And as we're in Leeds, it might be worthwhile talking about a customer that's used this. There's an agency here called Parallax, which you might know. Okay. Uh, good Yorkshire company, run by several Yorkshire men <laughs> and Yorkshire women. Uh, they're a digital agency, so they're working in the uh, advertising, digital, branded apps space. They also do digital signage and a few other things. But last year, they worked on a project with, uh, with David Guetta for the uh, Euro 16, 2016 Football Championships. Right. They created a browser-based application to support the creation of a, a record called This One's For You, which David Guetta recorded for the 2016 European Football Championships. And they recorded the voices of a million fans. Okay, so they had a browser-based app where you could go load up thisonesforyou.com, You'd get David Guetta explaining to you on a video what you needed to do. Yeah. You'd then get an experience where you recorded your own voice via your browser. 
whole thing was implemented using this serverless pattern. Okay, the audio artifacts were stored in S3. Mm -hmm. The source for the application was delivered from S3. There were endpoints that were expressed using AWS Lambda for the various transactions mm -hmm. that took place within the application usage flow. And at the end of it, they generated some customized artwork, the album cover, the record cover for this one's for you with your own personalized graphics right. on top of it, which you could then share on, on social media. But the whole thing was built completely serverless. Wow. wow. Uh, whole uh, thing. Yeah, the whole thing was built completely serverless. And the whole project cost Parallax less than $500 over a three-month period. Super. Goodness me. So very, very cost-effective. If you want to know more about that, jump on Twitter, <laughs> find a guy called Mr. Rio, okay, and, uh, and tweet him and ask him to tell you more. He's the guy that built it at Parallax James Hall. He's actually an AWS community hero, so he's a, definitely a friend of AWS, but also a great, a great JavaScript Fantastic developer as well. Fantastic story. I think we could be re-engineering our whole uh, site after this call. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, all, I've always thought it, so my, my entry into, like, I'm not sure if it was on VR presentations or webinars or, or where it was, but... Um, I was told wherever you think of cron jobs, yeah. think of a lambda function. Yeah. And I think my thinking's moved on from that a little bit now. But now I'm starting to hear entire entire real real estates. I can't quite wrap my head around. That yeah, and then this yet. is partially to do with the extension of the number of supported event sources. So I mm -hmm. talked about S3 when I started. You just mentioned cron. Well, CloudWatch events is our scheduling. Mm -hmm. event emitter so we emit events on a schedule using cloudwatch events yes. and those events can act as lambda event sources and then trigger lambda functions on a predetermined schedule so okay. any scheduled job that you would run via cron yeah well as long as you can express the scheduled job in javascript java python or c sharp mm -hmm. uh, you can run it of course and you can wrap uh, and access the features of Amazon Linux inside mm -hmm. these programming languages. So it's the entry point that has to be in one of those four supported languages. You could actually compile Golang and deploy it in your deployment bundle and run Golang binaries on Amazon Linux as part oh, okay. of the process, or call out to shell script or yeah. shell commands yeah. within, within your JavaScript or Python or within the other programming languages, presumably it's supported there as well. So you've got a lot of flexibility as to what the programming model is as long as you use one of those four supported mm -hmm. entry points. Mm -hmm. And the event emitter is the thing that does the scheduling. But there are other event emitters as well. Uh, the, our API gateway. So you can express a RESTful API or other API structure uh, by assigning resources and actions to Lambda functions. Mm -hmm. So when I hit that API endpoint and request that particular action on that specific resource, I can implement the logic required for that action using a Lambda function. Right. Okay, so we have right an API there. gateway. It's very common to use that as a mechanism to build a multi-platform backend for mobile and web applications. And our API gateway actually has SDK generation for JavaScript and Java as well. Okay. So if you're writing web apps, you, you can build your skeleton SDK directly out of the API design that you build on our API gateway. That's a service that can be used as an event source. AWS IoT, so for connected device applications. We have a rules engine can evaluate the contents of messages that come from connected devices. And one of the targets for that rules engine can be AWS Lambda. So you can implement back-end logic for connected device apps using Lambda if you're building appliances or connected vehicles or connected street infrastructure. The logic and back-end infrastructure for that can run in Lambda on demand. 
uh, Amazon Kinesis. You know this? It's a very little experience so far. Mm. This is stream. Yeah, stream. high volume. Well, data streaming at any volume actually. So think Apache Kafka. Mm -hmm. Well, Kinesis enables you to establish a similar environment, but it removes the heavy lifting of having to deploy and operate and manage failure conditions in your stream management service. Mm -hmm. We deliver that as a service to customers. Every second, that stream can be polled. And if there are new records within the stream, they can be processed by AWS Lambda with a configurable batch size. Mm -hmm. So you can basically use AWS Lambda as a mechanism for responding to real-time data streams. Uh, there could be other event sources that I've forgotten. Or Amazon CloudWatch events, Amazon okay. CloudWatch logs, so you can respond to log events, you can respond to events that are emitted by other AWS services using AWS Lambda. We already talked about using that for scheduling as well. Yeah. Yeah. There could be more, but, but well, these are some of the core ones. Our one lander that we have in production at the minute, we are doing more, but response to an email. That's oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. comes through. That's SES. SES. Yeah. Comes through Simple SES email service. Yeah. We do some processing of the email, and it shoves attachments onto S3, yeah. and then sends a message to a queue, which is then picked up by another microservice in the system. So yeah. very simple. And I should say to anybody listening to this, I, I think in, in Java, obviously we already use the word Lambda, and it's a slightly scary area. Yeah. And I can assure anybody trying Lambda, it's a jar file. Yeah. In Java, it's a jar file. And it's and you have a special entry point method. But apart from that, it's, yeah, it's just standard Java. Mm. The, I can thing, say for Python developers as well, it's just the same. You have a special entry point, but other than that, it's just standard Python. Yeah. Yeah. And presumably, there would be no problem with, um, I mean, when we say Java, we really mean just Java class files. So we, we could, do, we haven't tried this, we could use Scala or yeah. other JVM languages. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Is there a, a link? So it's a, as I understand it, that Lambda functions are going to be relatively short lived. So is there like a maximum execution time? Yeah, there time? is. There is. There's a five-minute execution time cap. So this right. is one of the constraints. If you've got a long-running job that needs to run for more than five minutes, then there are some other approaches that you can take, which we can maybe talk about a little bit later on. So you do have some constraints. And that really is, I mean, it's there as a backstop, really, to prevent customers from having functions that don't exit cleanly. Yes. Right. You know? So you don't okay. want to, obviously, because you're paying by the 100 millisecond, 128 megabyte memory footprint chunk. <laughs> it's very granular billing. Okay, you don't want to have customers that are hitting unnecessary charges because for some reason their functions have not exited cleanly. They may be in a, a state which is hung. So that time limit is partially there to protect customers from from overbilling yes. as a result of yes. functions not ex exiting cleanly. Yes. We've seen other approaches that customers have taken if they want to mix event-driven programming models together with long-running jobs. And you talked about one of them, which is SQS queues, where you might receive an event in Lambda, push that into a queue, and then have a conventional EC2 worker tier coming along and picking up those long-running jobs. Sure. Okay. This can also be helpful if those jobs require specialist resources. I mean, what if the job requires a GPU? Well, if you're having EC2 instance pick up the job, you can then take the event-driven initiation, but you can process it with one of our P2 instances, which has the high-performance NVIDIA GPU accelerators in them. So you can mix the right computing resources for the right job but still benefit from the event initiation. And then uh, the other way to do it, of course, is with uh, Docker containers on our service ECS, the EC2 container service. You could have a EC2 ECS cluster sitting there waiting for these longer running jobs. And because, as I said before, 
lambda functions have IAM roles, you could give a lambda function an IAM role that allowed it to initiate tasks on ECS. So running a collection of containers in response to an event mm -hmm. as well. Right. Okay. Again, a quicker way to initiate those tasks and give you more fine-grained control over how you place mm -hmm. them using our scheduler. So there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff you can do there if you want to mix and match these different models. Perfect. I think, did you, did you say it's, I think it's a five-minute? Yes, five-minute uh, TCL. seconds. Yeah. Uh, are there any other restrictions, like can I, um, if I'm using other libraries, can I you can, deploy them? There's a maximum deployable size. I forget the number, but it's in the docs. Uh -huh. uh, and there's also a maximum memory cap as well. So I think it's okay. 1.5 gigs, but you want, probably want to check the documentation sure. for that as well. Okay. So you can't dial in more than 1.5 gigs of allocated memory per function. When you do dial up, and memory allocation is something that you do at function creation time, or you can tune later on by changing the attributes of a function mm -hmm. in the API post-deployment. Uh, that doesn't just scale memory, it also scales CPU allocation and it scales network bandwidth allocation as well. So all host okay. resources scale linearly in accordance with the amount of RAM that you allocate to the function. Yes. So if you've got a function that needs a lot of CPU time but is light on memory, you can still improve its performance by dialing up RAM. Right. These other resources okay. will scale linearly as well. And that's the charging metric. The number of 128 megabyte chunks that you allocate to that function will drive how much you pay for it per 100 milliseconds. Okay. But you're getting other resources as well as RAM. Yeah. Wow, mind blown. <laughs> we're, we're, we're probably thinking in the background about how, I mean, we've got two things to think about. Obviously, our customers want to hear about this yeah. and see how it fits in with our software development courses. But... We're also developing using this stuff as well. And I know Matt's going to, he's going to raise 50 cases for me tonight. Well, now, so. <laughs> probably, but I mean, actually, one of the things that's interesting for us is so we, we, our platform is a monolith that is gradually being moved bit by bit into this microservice architecture. Yeah. With enormous amounts of pain. Yes. But I must stress, <laughs> most of the pain is getting rid of grails rather yes, than. That's true. So that's a side topic to today. The <laughs> but, you know, what, what's interesting is that we are taking advantage now of having a load balancer with multiple service supporting our front end so it can scale all that kind of great stuff mm -hmm. and yet there'll be bits of our architecture and particularly the daily billing process where you don't want that to scale and run multiple times we've got a there, there are bits that need to be pulled out and run once now daily billing is probably a good example so, because actually every that, that process yes it has to run once but we don't want a server sitting there running 24 hours a day that's going to be operational literally for two minutes you don't but that, that daily billing process I mean, it's quite a simple phrase, daily billing process. Yeah. I used to work in telecoms, so I know that daily billing process can actually be quite a complex, quite a complex <laughs> yes. application. So there's something else here that we should probably talk about, which is a relatively new service we've got called AWS Step Functions. Ah, this Ooh. was on my sheet. Yeah, and so this allows you to coordinate uh, more complex applications that are built out of multiple Lambda functions. So, you know, your daily billing process might have a ingest, transform, process step to it well yes. those need to run sequentially and actually you probably want some stop go logic across those what's the point of trying to push the data through to the next phase if you failed okay. the preceding the preceding step so with step functions you can define these state-based flows for applications that have multiple sequential steps might have parallel steps might have logic gates within execution flows that you want to build you can build it all visually using the aws step functions designer and then you can chain a collection of lambda functions together 
with the right reliability characteristics mm -hmm. to enable you to build more sophisticated versions of your daily billing process, which right. could be quite a complex, uh, <laughs> complex thing to unpack when you look at it. So, I mean, it's probably beyond the scope of this to talk about it in detail, but if you've got a use case like that, it's well worth taking a look at that service. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is. yeah, I just literally half an hour ago noticed that, no, noticed that service. I'd never yeah. heard of it, so I wrote, must ask about step functions. Yeah, there's some cool videos about that on YouTube from AWS reInvent last year, including one from a guy called Tim Bray, who you might know was the inventor of XML and also yeah. worked on also worked on that service. He's one really? of the principal wow. engineers on there, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So a workflow around, so there would be lots of small Lambda functions that you're gathering together in a workflow. Yep. Beautiful. And you can have, as I said, sequential, parallel, or logic-based execution. So mm -hmm. if you've got a function which exits, you might have a couple of different exit states. Mm -hmm. If it exits successfully, do this. If it fails, do that. And those can be two other Lambda functions that you that you route to on the basis of exit conditions as well. Yeah, so you can build build sophisticated logic flows using using Lambda functions as building blocks. And we have that a graphical interface. Can we script that as well? Can we? Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to actually go and have a look at that after this call. <laughs> this is going to create me some work. I can. Feel I certainly it. am. But actually, no. I, mean, I can exactly see that the billing example. Yeah, I can really because. Each individual customer is a very simple process of try and build them and it either works or it doesn't and based mm -hmm. on who they are and what the error code is, is yeah, what you do. Yep. But actually, yeah, so to break it down so you have it running once per customer and having that in a flow, I can see being a, yeah. a nice solution. Um, and of course, because it's broken down, hopefully easy to maintain as well. So if our credit card provider wants to change something at their end, yeah. it should yeah. be a reasonably straightforward Just change that function process. that performs yeah. that performs that yeah. action, yeah, that's mm. right. Yeah. And it also reduces the, I mean, one of the reasons customers are moving towards microservices is it reduces iteration type, it, it reduces the testing coverage that you require for that change. If that's a separate function, it stands alone, you know, it doesn't have dependencies, either intentional or unintentional, mm. unintentional dependencies on any other part of your code base. So well, the only thing you need to change is that, but also the only thing you need to test is that change. Yes. Yeah. There's some interesting, I mean, <laughs> one of the other things sort of just mentioning that is around some of the customer stories. So I, I think it was fascinating. Some of the uh, the people we heard present, and particularly the train line, mm -hmm. um, who were talking about, um, so for those who don't know, the train line is, I thought it was a UK company, it turns out it's international, yeah. um, providing train booking services to customers worldwide. I mean, it's a super interesting company. It's a super interesting AWS customer case study, and one that has actually featured at a couple of AWS events. Chris Turville is the head of cloud at Trainline. He was on stage with our CTO, mm -hmm. Werner, at reInvent last year talking about their, their usage of AWS. And obviously, oh. reInvent is in the US. Uh, and I can say there were a few surprised faces in the audience when Chris was talking about the scale of Trainline, how big it is. You know, it's the yes. sixth largest retailer in the UK right. with revenues of around £2.5 billion a year. And until quite recently, then you had one product in one category, which was train tickets. Now they also, I think, have just moved into into some other transport modes as well, but they, they were doing mm -hmm. just train ticketing for a long time, operating across Europe. And they have a really amazing service. I mean, I travel by train every week for my role, pretty much from Yorkshire down to London. I work a lot. And uh, I really love the product. It's so easy to use. They have integrated integration with expense systems like Concur. You can buy a ticket and create a diary entry for the travel immediately, so you know when you need to be at the station. Mm -hmm. They've even got this new feature called BusyBot, which will show you visually when you get to the platform whereabouts on the train there is 
empty seats, so where you know where to stand, so you can get wow. a seat without having to force your way through a, a busy train. So yeah, it's, that good. it's a really good, it's a really great product. But they've also done a lot of change in their internal, the way in which they deliver technology over the last few years as well. They've broken up their application as you've described, moving to services-based architecture. They've really increased the velocity with which they can move through their release and product iteration iteration they've, process they've to get new ideas quickly, out. Though, as well. that, was, yeah. that was the surprising yeah. bit of yeah. the story for me, is how yeah, they quickly have. they've moved from a monolith to a microservice. They have, they have. And I probably, I didn't see Chris's talk at, at the summit this week. I do know him, but I didn't see him this week. But probably what he was talking about is moving from project-based thinking to product-based thinking. Absolutely, so something yeah. that he talked about. So yeah. once you've got that ownership and the people that own the different products that make up your overall all service have ownership of them, that in itself just naturally increases velocity. People have got more control. They've also got the tools that they need to move ahead more quickly. And you're sort of, you're not only decoupling your application architecture, you're also breaking up the product and service that you provide into chunks that are more easily understood and more easily yeah. evolved. So the, this results in this flywheel accelerating, I think, where you're equipped with the right tools to make change quickly, so people are more motivated to make change quickly. Mm. If you see what I mean, that's yes. a yeah. kind of accelerating flywheel. It's worked really well for them. Yeah, interesting. Where, what's the so certainly just sort of thinking a bit more widely then. So definitely serverless is the big thing, or one of the big things at the moment. What, what does Amazon see are the other particularly big things that people are grasping and running with right now? So it's probably better to talk about new things that we've launched recently because obviously we only launch products that, that customers tell us are important and valuable to them. So if you take a look at things that we've announced recently, it's quite a good indicator of what some of the big trends are that we see from our customers. The first is uh, a continuing drive towards the data-driven enterprise. So customers want to get more value from data and they want to get more value from larger data sets but at the same time be cost-efficient and not have to l run a lot of infrastructure in order to do that. We've announced a few new services for that one called Amazon Athena. This allows you to query data using an SQL-based interface while the data remains in Amazon S3. So oh. there's no, no need to run an EMR cluster, Elastic Map Produce, which yeah. I think you might have covered in some of your courseware. Yes. No need to run Amazon Redshift, our, our data warehouse. You can map the data using a data description language into a relational format while it remains in S3 mm -hmm. and then you can query it using a regular JDBC based interface. Oh, what happens under, under the covers is Presto is running on the data within S3 so actually we're using Presto to create the SQL based query interface and uh -huh. to create the table based structure within, within S3 and allow customers to ask regular uh, business intelligence questions using SQL of data while it still resides in S3. So that's something okay. we announced last year. Something similar on Redshift called Redshift Spectrum that allows you to use the Redshift engine, so our data warehousing engine, and integrate data. Some of your data stored in Redshift clusters mm -hmm. and then larger data sets still stored in S3. And then you're federating the query operation. So the query planner is on Redshift, but some of the query operation takes place on the data whilst it remains in S3. It's very good for extremely large external tables that are maybe too big to load into a Redshift cluster. Right. That's okay. pretty big data, but there are still use cases like that. Okay. So that's something new. Then we've announced uh, an edge computing service called AWS Greengrass. It's in the IoT domain. Mm -hmm. It allows you to 
push some of the functions that are present within the AWS IoT service into edge computing devices. So this is things like the device shadow, the AWS IoT rules engine, the authentication and authorization capabilities that are present within our IoT gateway component. Mm -hmm. These can be run locally within the AWS Greengrass runtime, which can run on either Intel or ARM CPU architectures. And it enables customers to build sophisticated IoT applications without having to have the environment permanently connected to the network. Right. Oh, right. or okay. permanently connected to the cloud. So yeah. we see use cases for this in resource extraction, in mining, in uh, agriculture, where customers may have IT infrastructure that they want to turn into intelligent connected device infrastructure, which is away from reliable network connectivity. Right, yes. Maybe so, under the okay. ocean or mm -hmm. underground, yeah. for example, thinking about resource extraction and mining use cases. Yeah. So IoT at the edge and sophisticated IoT capabilities, but running at the edge, disconnected from, from AWS, disconnected from the internet. So wow, that's something. Okay. Okay. And then a third area of innovation has been around AI. Um, and we've been doing a lot in this area. Uh, we've announced a significant investment and in set of contributions into a deep learning framework called MXNet, which is now an Apache project, so Apache MXNet. And it's a toolkit for developers that want to build neural network-based applications for things like image recognition, document classification, and other applications of neural networks besides. So that's something we did uh, last year, we announced that. And we've also got some abstracted services that make it super simple for developers to access AI features an image recognition service called Amazon Recognition, where mm -hmm. you can give the service an image, and we can do things like scene detection. You know, looking at this room that we're seeing in here, I might see the LCD screens that are on these laptops, I might see laptop computer, I might see coffee mug, I might see headphones. Get metadata back about the image that I've provided, which tells me what's in it. And it's slightly, I've had a play with it, it's slightly scary. <laughs> it can detect faces and tell you how old you are, whether you're male or female. Uh, whether you're smiling, so it can do a lot on the <laughs> facial as well. We also announced recently a feature for celebrity detection. Yeah. So if you have a photo, which got it's a lot got, of press coverage, yeah. didn't it? It went down well. Though, yeah. yeah. If you've got a celebrity in your scene, it will name, name them for you. Uh, so <laughs> I tried something. it on several photographs that I have. Are you, are you a celebrity? Are you a celebrity? <laughs> no. No. Okay. no I'm very disappointed. <laughs> so that, that's Am something. I? Am I? Uh, <laughs> right. Not. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, there's in, for that service in the console, in the AWS console, you'll find there's an onboarding sort of test tool where you can log into the console, yeah. browse an image on your local machine, push it, and do the scene detection and celebrity detection directly within the console. Now, we obviously think developers will use it via the API, but of course. you can test using the console. And you can get the, you know, the funny yeah. stuff. I, for those of you that aren't watching in person, which is, of course, all of you right now, <laughs> I have white hair, okay? Uh, and this is something that fools the system into thinking I'm a little bit older than I am. Okay, so... Yep. Yeah, that's not, not quite so funny. Uh, Amazon Polly, a similar service. This is for speech generation. So you give it text. Generation, You right. give it text, and it returns back to you the spoken word. Okay. Ah, 27 cool. languages, 42 or 43 different voices. So wow. From English to Icelandic. In terms, of, in terms and, of and obviously callable through an API. Yeah, callable through an API. And you can either stream the audio or download an MP3 from the API. You can use something called SSML, speech synthesis markup language, to mark up your text to control pronunciation, inflection, have words spelt rather than pronounced, even switch language mid-sentence. If you're transcoding, say, premiership football, yeah. you might want to 
pronounce the names of those Spanish or Portuguese players in Spanish or Portuguese, <laughs> you can do that with the service by switching language midway through the, wow. the rendering process as well. Gosh. And then lastly, something called Amazon Lex, which unbundles some of the technology inside the Amazon Echo and makes it available for developers to use. It supports both audio and text-based interfaces, and it makes it much simpler for customers to build chatbots or conversational interfaces. Right. So again, there's a really good console experience with this. If you log into the AWS console, there are, I think there are now three, yeah, there are three template bots there that you can provision. One for booking travel, which supports airline and car hire bookings, okay. or in detection of intent and the skeleton required to execute that type of transaction. Mm -hmm. Another one for ordering flowers, and a third one which is an appointment scheduler. So you mm. can say something like, you know, I want to book a flight from London to New York, and the neural network behind the service will figure out what questions you need to be asked in order to complete the transaction. When do you want to travel, and what, what date, and be which airline. Wow. Okay, so it dynamically builds the back and forth flow that is required to get all of the data required to execute whatever intent mm -hmm. it's detected. Very sophisticated service. We integrate with Slack, or provide direct integrations with Slack, with Facebook, and we also have these enterprise SaaS connectors. Mm -hmm. So you can put these interfaces on the front of Microsoft Dynamics or Salesforce or Marketo and build conversational interfaces into existing enterprise systems as well using the tool. Fantastic. And, th and these services are launched? They're all generally available in, now. In the all regions? Yeah, uh, not in all the regions. Okay. So Lex is available in US East 1. The other two services, Poly and Recognition, are available in several regions around the world. Right. And Lex only supports English at this point, this point in time okay. as well. Uh, but the other services, as I said, Poly, uh, 42 voices, 43 voices, 17, no, 43 voices, 27 yeah. languages. Wow. Uh, and Recognition, obviously, well, it's images, so... Wow. I mean, the problem with all of this, and it's a nice problem, is keeping up with it all. And, yeah. You know, we turn around and then look again, and more new services. I, obviously, that's your daily problem, yeah. isn't it? How yeah. do you keep all this stuff in your head? Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, I spend a lot of time learning about AWS. It's part of my role and part of the role that my team have as well is to be up to date. It's difficult to be a domain expert on everything, but mm -hmm. we find that customers are pretty good at self-selecting areas that are interesting yes, to them. Obviously, we have AWS blogs. We have the master or the main AWS blog, which is written by one of my colleagues, Jeff Barr. You, know, mm -hmm. you can find that on awsamazon.com AWS slash blog. We'll add a link to the show notes. Yep. There's an RSS feed there, which will every morning when you wake up have three or four or five new things that you can find out about short form content. Actually, there's a lot of contributors now as well as Jeff mm -hmm. writing there because there's such a volume of releases. It's very right. hard for one person to keep up with all that. Uh, and then we have specialist blogs as well, DevOps, Compute, Big Data, mm -hmm. Security. So if you're a domain expert in one of these fields or want to become one, then Yes. You can subscribe and find technical content about particular areas of interest that you have as well. And then we have online video assets. So AWS reInvent, mm -hmm. there's hundreds of videos mm -hmm. from reInvent last year posted on our YouTube channel that you can dive into and learn more about these services. Wonderful. Similarly, the larger AWS summits around the world will record a lot of the sessions and make them available mm -hmm. online. So there's a lot that you can learn about, about AWS by using these online resources as well as user groups and, and in-person events, of mm -hmm. course, as well. So how many services is it now? We have over 90. Wow. Over 90 primary, over 90, we could call them primary services yes. or top-level services. But the other thing is we have an iterative model. So as customers use services like Amazon Redshift or S3, which are very, very popular services, and Aurora, a very, very popular service, 
we get a lot of feedback from customers about how they can be enhanced. And the, the more feedback they get, we get, yes. the more accurate and timely we can be in pushing new features into the services as well. It's one of the, I think one of the underappreciated benefits of using the cloud. It's great that you can access all of this stuff without having to build it yourself, but also everything improves over time without yes. you having to improve mm, yeah, it yourself absolutely. either. So yeah. if you're using a platform, AWS, like AWS, you'll find that more and more features and capabilities get added as a natural yes. sort of matter, of yes. course, in, in running, running services. This way, it's really a powerful tool for developers, in my view. I think racking my brains to think, um, do you ever remove services? I can't think of any that disappear. <laughs> we, we don't remove them or deprecate them, because obviously customers depend upon the APIs that we provide. Mm -hmm. So it'd be really disingenuous for us to remove a service, I think, that a customer was using. We'd always try to avoid doing that if it was at yeah, all possible right. to avoid it. But what we do do is when we launch new regions, we don't always retrofit I see. all the services nice into new regions. Yeah. Mm. So if you look at uh, some of the services that have been around a long time, you'll find that they're not the ones that are no longer promoted but are still in use. There are just one or two of those actually. They are not necessarily going to be present in new regions that we create. Okay. There's also where we do have. There are occasions where we have to make changes. Uh, take the signature protocol that's used for API requests. Mm -hmm. Probably heard of Sig V4. Yes, our, our current signature protocol. That obviously implies that there were, you know, previous versions, <laughs> uh, and those, uh, some of them have been deprecated, and some of them are not yes. being enabled in new regions that we create. And in that case, we try to give customers the maximum possible amount of notice. Mm -hmm. And we can obviously see through our our logging of platform usage, which services are being used by which customers. The data that you store and process on S3 on, on Amazon Web Services is completely opaque to us. Mm -hmm. But we can see, obviously we have to see for billing purposes, yes. who's using which services when, API rates, request formats, etc. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, we can then target customers that might be using these services that are about to be mm -hmm. or need to be deprecated in the future. And we yeah. can let that targeted group of customers know that they need to come off that particular signature version yes. because it's no longer yes. going to be supported in the future. And sometimes you'll get a mail from, from AWS saying, We've noticed you're using X or Y. Can you please make this change? Or we've noticed you're using this or that particular Amazon machine image or version of RDS. And you might get a security bulletin from us asking you to take some action to prevent yourself from becoming vulnerable for something. Yeah. Lovely. I'm gobsmacked yeah, by the fact, for the benefit of the listeners out there, you've spoken with no notes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely no notes. To have all of that in your head is... And we didn't prime any of this either. We didn't no. give you a briefing, really. No, no, this, is, uh, this is truly live. Remember, I just came off the back of talking about Lambda at the AWS Summit this week, so yeah. it's definitely fresh in my mind. And it is a very popular topic with customers, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the power, though, that an ordinary developer today now has access to is yeah. just mind-blowing for me. I mm. mean, some of those latest things you were just mentioning there, the speech-related stuff, the translate, you know, the yeah. multiple languages. If I'd have had that when I started 20 years ago... And as a business, if you're a startup, you get oh, there's never so been much a this for free. There's never mm. been a better time to start a company that relies on technology. I mean, yeah. it's, you can get started for free with things like the AWS free tier and the AWS Activate program that we have for startups. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, you can grow big and remain cost efficient. You know, mm -hmm. As you get larger, your cost per unit of consumption will actually go down. Things mm -hmm. like S3, we have volume breaks there. So the bigger you get, mm -hmm. the less you pay per gigabyte stored. So your costs are better than linear. Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. not that way with, with old school, old guard technology. It's not that way. 
Yeah, we had um, our, our story is we, we launched the business. Our first two courses, I think, were hosted on a server. And we realized that to launch course number three, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it would almost not be worth our while to put a third course on that server. Because, because you have a big lump of CapEx that you need when you've got to buy that next machine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and that's what forced us actually to go to S3 for the first time. So we were relatively early adopters and, and it was a joy to do it. It was so easy. It took us a while to go over to EC2, but the, the move to S3 was a, yeah. a no-brainer. You probably look back on it now and think, why would you ever do it any other way? Absolutely. I mean, that's how I look at it. I just think if you're Absolutely. building apps today, there's really no better place to build them than in the cloud. It's just, it just doesn't yeah. make sense to me yeah. to waste your time. Waste your, not so much waste your time as you can prioritize other activities that are mm -hmm. much more valuable, much more important if you don't do that heavy lifting. And if you avoid those maintenance activities that you don't have to do if you're running Lambda, yes. you can spend the time you would have spent checking whether those operating systems are secure. Yeah, on building yeah. new features that customers find valuable. So why wouldn't you do that instead? That just are there some areas? I, my background was originally in defense, but I've been out of that business now for about 15 years, so I have no idea how done. I guess it's all secret anyway, but there must be some businesses who would never consider going to the cloud and absolutely have to have their VMS deck servers there I think, I think there are. I think with any application that already exists, there's a constant assessment, isn't there, of risk and benefit, you know, cost and benefit maybe, of whether or not it's worthwhile to replatform that application. Yeah. There are some industries, some parts of government too, that have specific regulatory obligations that they need to act in accordance with. And actually, this is one of the reasons that the AWS announced a region here in the UK, which we launched in December last year. So we have a region now here in London with two availability zones at the moment. Mm -hmm. So customers can run their applications locally in the UK but take advantage of all of these services or the vast, vast majority of these services that we've been talking about from, from AWS in London. Mm -hmm. And that's really helped us with uh, public sector customers here in the mm -hmm. UK, particularly mm -hmm. in health but also in, in other areas. And yeah. If you were at the AWS Summit this week, you might have seen uh, Dave Perry. He's the CTO from the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Agency, the DVLA. On I stage. noticed it. We didn't yeah. see it. I was actually talking about how having an AWS region in the UK has made things easier and better mm -hmm. for the DVLAs. And Politically, I was surprised to see DVLA there. That was a, mm -hmm. wow, that's a Yeah, well, we, we featured their sister organization, DVSA, which is the Driver and Vehicle Standards okay. Agency, in the keynote last year, the AWS right. Summit. Yeah. Those are the people that run the driving test process, for example. Yes. Whereas DVLA is all about driving licenses and all about vehicle records. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and what Dave Perry was saying in his keynote, I'm paraphrasing him, he was saying really politically simpler because there's obviously less political concern about uh, the UK government running its applications in the UK than there might be about them running them yes. in other parts of, of Europe, such as Ireland, for example. Marginal performance gains, mm -hmm. which are important. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, data sovereignty and data re yes. residency. The data yes. is on UK soil. Mm -hmm. so, you know, it just makes it simpler for people in government that want to drive technology change to engage with stakeholders and, and convince their stakeholders that yeah. the benefits outweigh the potential costs mm -hmm. and risks. I was noticed in the marketplace is in the right phrase, but where you have your exhibition with lots of vendors there, yeah. actually certainly you know, helping companies manage security of their cloud platforms and also 
uh, general control of what could be a spiralling set of services and costs and helping companies is obviously a massive growing market for that. So, which I think must reflect that more and more of the larger companies, I mean, my background is banking. I worked yeah. in IT and banking for years. Now, when I left there a few years ago, I could never have imagined banks moving their infrastructure into the cloud. And yet, I guess every bank these days has an app and the app backends must be all cloud -based. Well, there's quite so, a few banks yeah. that run a lot more than just their apps in the cloud. <laughs> They're running core systems now in the mm -hmm. cloud that you would probably have considered a few years ago immovable. Yeah. You probably think yeah. they'll never move that out of their own data center, but actually uh, yeah. quite a few of them do and quite a few of them are. Uh, and yeah, I think the rise of these they're really complementary tools that help customers get more value out of AWS or accelerate adoption. I think, in part, some of the rise of, of technology providers of that type has been in response to the natural complexity that's grown up within enterprise IT over time. You know, you probably, nobody would set out at day one to build a complex system because everybody knows that <laughs> complexity is difficult to build, but it's good and very effective at evolving yeah. <laughs> over time. And yeah. what you look at, if yeah. you've got 10, 15, 20, even 50 years of IT is, you've got 10, 15, 20, 50 years of evolved complexity in the IT. Yeah. And moving that in order to take advantage of this new technology, technology delivery model, mm -hmm. it's challenging. Mm -hmm. and, and it can be eased through the injection of some of these tools that you've talked about, but also through the injection of skills from the other kinds of partners that were present at the, the event this week, which are AWS consulting partners, yes. who will bring in methodologies, experience, capability to help customers move existing application portfolio, portfolios to AWS. And we see partners there. Claranet were a sponsor on Wednesday, but also large multinational systems integrators and professional services companies like Accenture and CSC and others are also operating in this space, helping customers realize the, the potential, the benefits of the cloud without having to go through a large ramp up of hiring and training before they can start to deliver some of those benefits. That's where, where these providers re really add a lot of value, I think. Lovely. Well, I'm not sure how we're doing on time, but it's absolutely like bang on bang time. On. Look at it. So it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you again no for coming in. Thanks for the invite. And, Appreciate it. And for allowing us to come actually to the summit day. If anyone gets a chance, hasn't been to one of these and gets a chance to go, I'd absolutely recommend it. It's an yeah. interesting experience and a great opportunity just to find out about organizations that are benefiting in ways that you'd never think about, which will inspire you to think about opportunities to improve your own business, really. Yeah, you can see the rest of the programme, by the way, at awsamazon.com slash summits. If you go there, you'll see what we've got left to run this year. Uh, and you can register, of course, the free events, so running in various locations around the world. Free events. That's what we like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again. It's Ian, thank you. Thank and, you. And uh, if you've been listening to us, thank you for listening, and hopefully see you at the next one. I'll see you next time. <laughs>